If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 57, and we'll get started there in a moment. The book of Matthew is about 75% of the way through your Bibles. It is uh, difficult for us to fully grasp or describe what happened in and through the death of Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he bore the sins of the world and that he died for our sins in our place, exchanging his perfect, holy, innocent blood for our own. And this is a stunning claim. But what happened after his death on the cross, arguably, is equally stunning. We pick up in Matthew 27, verse 57, with this account. Jesus has just breathed his last, and this is what happened next. Verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Not totally sure what that means. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of, the, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, gather together in your name this morning, and particularly we gather together uh, to celebrate this uh, account that we've just read, this uh, magnificent thing that happens um, after your death that has so changed and shaped the trajectory of the human story. And so as we um, gather together to, uh, to contemplate on this uh, event and to meditate on it and, and to think about what it might mean for how I live come Monday morning, would you be the one who moves here in power, who opens up our hearts and minds and makes us able to grasp who you are, uh, what it is that you've done, and what it means for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus was constantly pointing forward uh, to his death and resurrection. Day in and day out, he preached about the kingdom of God, or or the place where God rules and reigns. And he claimed uh, that it was coming to bear on this old, worn-out reality. That something new was coming about in and through Jesus. That God was on the move and that all of this was headed somewhere. And so he went from town to town uh, teaching people what it looks like to live in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. In this beautiful, profound, upside down, counterintuitive way of life. And he also demonstrated the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, by miraculously feeding the hungry and healing the leper and opening the eyes of the blind, in uh, casting out demons and making the sick well, and even, on occasion, raising the dead. All of this worked together to form this powerful message about God's inbreaking kingdom that was coming to bear on this reality in and through Jesus. And yet throughout his life, he continuously refers to his death and what lies beyond his death. These events, it seems, would launch the inbreaking kingdom of heaven to new heights. They were to be the pinnacle of his journey. And so over and over again, Jesus says, Uh, The Son of Man, coming maybe? Yes, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. And the disciples were filled with grief. And I imagine some confusion as well. And again, 
He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then, right before it happens, he pulls the disciples together and says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked and flogged with a whip and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then... Something curious happens. Jesus is handed over to the religious elite. And he is made to suffer. And then he is executed. And the disciples are stunned. Well, clearly that wasn't part of the plan. It's as if they never saw it coming. It's as, it's as though the thought of their leader dying and coming back from the dead was just too far outside of their framework. It's as if they couldn't understand or grasp the words that he was saying to them. Perhaps he's speaking poetically. Perhaps he's confused. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. The Jewish people collectively held this hope of future resurrection. They believed that one day uh, God would show up in power to end this age, to call it to account, and then to usher in a new one, renewing this world, making it a new heavens and a new earth, which the people of God would then be resurrected into. The fact that God would raise all of his people back from the dead in the eternal age to come, for many, was taken for granted. But the thought that God would raise one person back to life in the middle of this age, even the Messiah, it was unthinkable. It was simply outside of their framework. It didn't make any sense to them. Besides, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah. And on that fateful Friday, Jesus was crucified. Beaten almost beyond recognition, he was nailed to a cross and hung up for the world to see. In this, he bore the sin of the world and set the captive free. But this would not have been obvious to the original witnesses. What they saw was a failed leader hanging on a cross, being executed by soldiers whose very lives depended on the fact that he would be completely and totally dead. To ensure that the deed was done, 
a spear is thrust into his side, and blood and water flowed out. It was finished. They lowered the mutilated corpse down to the ground and buried it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The disciples wandered home, devastated by what they had just witnessed. The next day was Saturday, the Sabbath day, the Jewish day of rest, that no work was to be done. There would be no dressing of the body. For his friends and followers, there was only mourning. The Sabbath day came and went, and finally the third day arrived. The women gathered spices to dress the body and made their way to the tomb. Curiously, no one had expected anything miraculous to happen. Despite his repeated claims of rising again, it seemed as if no one had actually believed him. Ironically, his enemies took note and, and they posted Roman guards who were also to protect his tomb upon pain of death. But among his friends, no one seemed to expect the miraculous. As morning arrived on the third day and the sun began to rise, there were no disciples waiting. No TV cameras, no curious bystanders, just the sound of birds and a gentle breeze. The Roman soldiers start what they assume will be another uneventful shift. The women gather their spices and head for the tomb. How will they deal with the Roman guards or the stone that blocks the entrance? They aren't sure. But in their grief, they press on. All they can do is try. And so they go to honor the body of the one who had so transformed their lives with his love. But what they found that morning would shock the world. Multiple groups of women approaching at different times from different directions all report a similar scene. The stone is rolled away, the soldiers have been scattered, and they encounter something astonishing. In several cases, the women report encountering angelic beings who announce that Jesus is not there, that in fact, he is alive again. And in the case of Mary Magdalene, she encountered something even more earth-shattering. The resurrected Jesus himself. The shock which they experience is difficult to convey. What stood before their eyes, the voice that, that filled their ears, the feet which they now touched, it was impossible. And yet, here he was. Standing in front of them in a new body, actually a, a, new, a new type of body, 
raised back to life again, restored and incorruptible, the same type of body that they expected to one day have in the age to come. But this, this was not the age to come. Here he was standing in front of them, not in the age to come, but in the here and now. And the implications were staggering. Jesus was back from the dead. Death had been defeated, overcome, conquered. And Jesus was shown to be both Savior and Lord. The human death sentence so wrongfully given had been reversed and their future hope of resurrection was confirmed. And all of a sudden, new life began bursting forth in the middle of this worn out reality. His disciples were changed overnight and the crucifixion which should have ended this movement became the very center of a movement that would sweep across the planet touching every single nation under the sun. Something stunning had happened here. And these first men and women who encountered it were changed. And the rest of their lives would be devoted to the sharing of a single message. Jesus was back from the dead. And there is hope for humanity. Many of his first followers held the Jewish belief that God would one day remake this world and resurrect his people into it. But now they stood face to face with the proof. We're told that Jesus is the first fruits of what God is up to. That he is the firstborn among many brothers. And as they touched resurrected hands and looked into resurrected eyes, they were filled with a tangible hope. Stunning, shocking, overwhelming in its gravity. Contagious. And we're told that those who give their lives to Jesus now identify with Him in his death and all of its benefits. Being at last forgiven, our old self dies and is buried with Christ. And what emerges, the scriptures tell us, is that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come in you just as it did on that first Easter morning. And so now, in light of the resurrection, you are a new creation and you have hope that one day God will restore the earth and that all those who have given their lives to Jesus will be resurrected into it in the same way that Jesus was resurrected on Easter. And with hope for the future, we find hope for the present. That the resurrection life of Jesus now dwells in us. And that we are to begin in advance 
what Jesus will return to accomplish in full. The restoration and reconciliation and renewal of all things. New life, resurrection life, comes bursting forth in us and through us. And in a world governed by entropy and darkness, curiously these rays of light come bursting through the clouds, shedding light on the present and hinting at the blindingly glorious future which is yet to come. The message of the first Easter rang loud and clear in the lives of the first disciples. The tomb is empty and we have nothing left to fear. Jesus has conquered death in such a way that anyone who follows him will pass through death and into new life. Death has been defeated and Jesus is king. And so, in the midst of a dying world wrought with frustration and sin and death, suddenly bursting into it, there is hope. Shocking, surprising, stunning, almost catching us off guard. Hope. And in light of the resurrection, we are forced to ask ourselves, what is the proper heart posture in this age? Is it frustration and disappointment? Is it cynicism and bitterness? Is it a flippant and detached skepticism? Because for many of us, if we're honest, this life has not turned out as we had desired. This world, it turns out, is not the paradise that we so wish it could be. And the contrast is a bitter one. So many dreams have turned to ash in our hands. So many relationships now shattered and broken. So much suffering on this earth. And another child dies of starvation. And you get another two-week notice from the latest job. Another broken heart. Another divorce. Another parking ticket. Another season of depression. And we think to ourselves, surely pessimism is the only valid outlook. Surely Eeyore got it right. In fact, pessimism is so popular that I can equally say, oh, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist. And you know what I mean. Because in today's culture, optim or, uh, sorry, pessimism and realism are essentially the same thing. Have you ever thought about that? Essentially what you're saying is, in the name of true reality, I have to be pessimistic. 
in the name of true reality, I, I have to be a pessimist. And, and once you've chosen that heart posture, you begin to look down your nose at all of those naive, happy people. Oh, what do they have to be so upbeat and happy about? What genuine reason do they have for joy in this world? And if you're really a pessimist, if you're truly devoted to the craft, then you'll find within your heart this desire to, to shake them out of their happy delusions, to bring them back to reality as you would describe it, to awake them from their naive little dream, and to force them to look cold, hard reality in the face. Get serious. Wake up. This world is not a happy place. Face reality. Be a realist. But when those women approached the tomb that first Easter morning, what they encountered was reality. And reality, it seems, is not what we've assumed in our realism. True reality does not lend itself to pessimism. And in fact, the empty tomb is where pessimism goes to die. For Jesus swallowed up death and pessimism along with it, and now to face reality is to touch resurrected hands. It is to look into resurrected eyes. It is to question the reality that you used to believe. To be a realist, then, is not to be crushed under a, a suffocating hopelessness, but rather it is to come to terms with the events that unfolded on that first Easter morning. It is to wrestle with the fact that this reality is not what it seems, and that the world that you live in is not the one described by atheism or by pessimism. And that a new world is coming. In the resurrection of Jesus, we find hope for the future and new life for the present. Such that we can now stare into the face of starving children in the developing world. And the homeless of downtown Spokane. And the contents of the letter that shakes in your hand as you read it, delivering bad news, and the bathroom mirror that reveals you and all of your frailty. And we can now stare into the face of all of it and say, there is hope. This reality is not what it seems. The tomb is empty. And a new world is coming. And as a result, we can actually walk in a land of darkness and yet find ourselves filled, not with a naive and baseless optimism that isn't rooted in anything, 
but rather with a true and genuine hope based not on the claims of realism or the conclusions of atheism, but on a redefinition of what is real. What we find in the resurrection of Jesus and the power of His Spirit living among us is hope and joy and expectancy and new life. More vibrant than the death that seeks to swallow it up. More beautiful and compelling than the alternative pictures of reality that the world attempts to sell us. And more powerful than the forces of cynicism and discouragement which plague the hopeless masses. And as the cynic comes to snuff out hope in all of its various forms, announcing to the world that it needs to get real and to wake up, we say, in a sense, that we could not agree more. That in fact, this world really has fallen asleep. Not in blind optimism, but in false pessimism. We have rejected the true source of hope in the world for reasons that we cannot fully articulate. And now in our hopelessness, our impulse is to just go on rejecting it. It can't be. It's simply too good to be true. They must have stolen his body. They must have made it up. But we have as much or more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as we have for any other event in ancient history. And as we sit here in this room this morning, billions, not millions, but billions of people will celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And so now, we can acknowledge the pain and suffering of the pessimists and the realists. But we cannot do so without acknowledging that there is another force at work in the universe. And that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in us. And so by placing our faith in Jesus, in His death on the cross, and in His resurrection from the dead, we are actually placing our faith in one of the most verifiable events in ancient history. And as we do, we are reconciled to God. We are brought near to Him. We are given a new spirit, and with it, a new perspective. We look out on a world full of pain and frustration and poverty and hopelessness. But now we do so through the lens of God's inbreaking kingdom, through the lens of the resurrection. And as disciples of the resurrection, we now exist to bring grace and truth and life and beauty 
into the very places of pain which formerly fueled our cynicism. And the places of pain and hopelessness are no longer evidence that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care, but rather they become ripe opportunities for us to partner with God as He displays His inbreaking kingdom and demonstrates His resurrection life by bringing hope and healing to the nations. And from the very beginning, the resurrection has always been the, the launching pad for the mission of God. The disciples are transformed from mourning and, and, and hopeless to some of the most passionate missionaries that this world has ever seen. Every one of them giving their lives to share this message with the rest of humanity. And in the wake of the resurrection, Jesus tells them and us that we are to go into all the world and share this good news about the empty tomb. In fact, in Mark's version, he tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes in me and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. And what exactly are we to believe in order to be saved, in order to be transformed and given absolute hope for the age to come? Simply that Jesus died for our sin on a Roman cross and that he didn't stay dead. Three days later, the tomb was empty and the world would never be the same. Simply put, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The cross and the resurrection with its empty tomb are the very center of our faith. And in this, we find hope for the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we start by recognizing the culture that we come from. That we were born into a culture that thinks a certain way, that declares certain very real things to be false and certain events to be um, simply impossible. Just like the first disciples, there are these things that are just too far outside of our framework. And yet it's reality. And so as we come together today and, and celebrate, as we continue in worship and, and celebrate what happened on that first Easter morning in the power of your Spirit, would it be real to us? 
And God, for those of us who are coming this morning and we're not really sure where we stand, um, we're not really sure if we have hope for the age to come, God, I, I pray that this would be a really clear and appropriate moment to just surrender to you. That there's actually nothing holding us back from you. There's actually nothing now holding us back from having absolute hope in resurrection and the age to come. So we come before you in gratitude, Jesus, in awe of what you did on the cross. And like the first disciples, we sit stunned before the empty tomb. And as you invite us to touch resurrected hands, to look into resurrected eyes, we know that we too are transformed by the reality that you are alive and not dead. We worship you in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen.